Welcome back to Culture Crossings, a podcast for globally mobile millennials with cross-cultural identities. We share and interview stories about our identity, wellness, and career development for young professionals on the move. This is Asuka. And I'm Phoebe. Before we begin, we wanted to thank you for coming back to our show after our production break. If you are new to Culture Crossings, thank you for finding us and we hope you'll join us on the journey. In Season 2, we'll focus on career development. Whether it's your first job out of college or if you're going through a career transition, we hope our podcast can share some food for thought. In this season, we'll interview globally mobile young professionals in various industries and countries. For those of us who work and live in cross-cultural or international settings, planning and owning your career path can be both exciting and overwhelming. In our interviews, we'll unpack some questions like, how do I build my career path? How do I navigate relocations and cultural transitions? We can relate to all these questions because we've both been there. For anyone who's new to our podcast, Phoebe and I met as undergrads in Canada about a decade ago. Since then, we had a fair amount of career changes, mostly in Asia and North America. Phoebe was mainly in journalism, and I was working in investment banking, public diplomacy, and now working on a PhD in international education. To make things practical and relatable, we interviewed our own friends and former colleagues who share cross-cultural identities and experiences. We hope this can bring some intercultural context to our conversation. We'll begin season two with a conversation on global career transitions. In this episode, we'll explore how to initiate a career change, especially in a different field and in a different country. We'll also talk about how to create a story from your resume and highlight your intercultural competency when speaking with a potential recruiter. For our guest, we have Toru Momi, a PhD candidate in music theory at Columbia University in New York. Before graduate studies, he worked in human resources at Barclays Investment Bank in Tokyo. Toru has been involved with diversity and inclusion initiatives when he was at the investment bank and currently at the university's Office of Academic Diversity and Inclusion. So welcome, Toru, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. There will be two parts for this interview. So first, we'll focus on your personal career transitions. And then next, we'll talk about your perspective as a former HR professional. To begin with, um, for our listeners, could you tell us about your cross-cultural upbringing and how that shaped who you are and your career choices? Sure, thank you. So I was born in Japan um, in a small city called Tokushima on Shikoku Island. That's, that's one of the four main islands of Japan. I was born there and then when I was six years old, my father got transferred to Washington, D.C. for his job. And so our whole family moved there, and we spent seven years there, living in suburban D.C. I attended public school in that area and on Saturdays, uh, which is common for a lot of um, Japanese folks living in the U.S. I went to Hoshuko, which is a, like a Saturday school um, where a lot of Japanese children go to keep up their Japanese or learn about Japanese culture and really learn how to socialize in Japanese. Because oftentimes, you know, Monday through Friday, you go to school in English and the only people you interact with in Japanese are your parents or your family. Um, and so that Saturday was kind of a really important time for all of us to kind of, you know, interact with peers our own age in Japanese. And sort of, it was like a, it was like a haven, 
you know, especially moving from Japan to the U.S. And, you know, some of us had been there for a long time. Some of us had just moved there. So there are a lot of cultural and linguistic um, transitional challenges. And it was just nice to sort of be able to share that experience. And so, yeah, I would say that was my first sort of uh, moment when I realized that um, something about my life was intercultural in that, so Monday through Friday, you know, it was mostly a predominantly white school in Northern Virginia. And there were, you know, maybe a few Japanese kids in the whole school, but not many. And it was all English. And then on Saturdays, when most, when most of my friends had their days off, we would go to school for another entire day. Um, and then we would, you know, basically go to school in Japanese and like cram one week's worth of material in that whole week, in that one day. Um, and then after school, we would go to, you know, someone's house and just play video games or, I mean, this was like the 90s. So play Pokemon cards, I don't know, something um, of that sort. And then, you know, and then that was that was that was that. So that was kind of the life I led for seven years. And when I was 13, uh, my father was transferred back to Japan. So um, our whole family moved back to Tokushima again. Um, and that was an incredibly rough transition. So, you know, I was, I had just finished seventh grade and, you know, I was sort of, I was prepared to finish my education basically in the United States. Um, but obviously, you know, life doesn't work that way. So, um, you know, left all my friends behind and then moved back, uh, to a city where I was born, but I didn't know anyone. And... Tokushima is a, is a very small city. It's the population's like 200,000. Um, and when I entered a middle school there, I was the only person who had, you know, came back from abroad. Um, if I were moving back to a big city like Tokyo, for example, there are many, many schools, public and private, that have a system in place to accept kids who had just been abroad. And so, there's often many programs where like a bunch of um, where a bunch of kids who just live abroad are in the same class and they all kind of, you know, have this shared um, experience of being a foreigner abroad. And then, you know, it's a very like, it's a very, I mean, I've heard it's a very welcoming experience. Um, but for me, it was a complete opposite because, you know, I was like the one outsider basically kind of stepping in and because, you know, because of the way Tokushima is, it's most of the kids had kind of known each other since elementary school. You know, it was a very like um, close knit environment. Uh, and so here I am stepping in and the students have no idea what to do with me. The teachers have no idea what to do with me. And, you know, just months prior, I was in an education system where um, there was so much focus on like individuality and like, you know, um, developing or like finding out what your interests are. Um, you could take electives, like based on your interests and um, you were encouraged to pursue, I don't know, um, activities in the arts. Um, at least that was, that was my school in the US. But the middle school in Tokushima was not like that at all. 
the emphasis was very much on sports. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I mean, I really hesitate to make this binary because it's not entirely true, but you know, the, the school I went to, there's a lot of focus on like, you know, like uniformity. Um, there's a very strict dress code. Um, everyone had to wear the same thing. Um, like very particular rules about like, oh, um, on sports day, for example, you could only wear a like a like a plain white shirt with like no letters or logos on it. Um, and I remember going to school with like a white shirt with like a small logo on it because that's the only thing I had. And the teacher sent me home <laughs> to change into a, a t-shirt, another white t-shirt with no logo on it. Um, so that was the kind of mentality, right? Like rules are rules and there was just no explanation for them and they were just, you have to follow them or, or else kind of thing. Um, and I didn't understand the rationale behind the very strict rules. Because, um, you know, um, I mean, I guess in my schools in, 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 in the U.S., um, there was always a lot of emphasis on, you know, um, against like violent behavior or like inappropriate behavior. Like, there's a lot of emphasis on that, but there were few rules about like what you could and couldn't do um, to that detailed level. I mean, obviously there was a dress code and enforced in different ways, but um, it was more broad strokes than that like tiny, tiny level of detail. And so, and yeah, that was a big transition for me. So how long did you live in Japan? So I lived there from ages 13 to 18. So I went to a Japanese, a local Japanese middle school for one full calendar year eighth grade and then like the first half of ninth grade was kind of where I went. Um, and yeah, there was a lot of clashing with teachers, a lot of clashing with students. Um, there were teachers and students who were not afraid to show their dislike towards me. Um, and there's an, there's an especially um, complicated tension with the English teacher, obviously, right? Here's this like, you know, 13, 14 year old who just jumps into the English teacher's classroom. And he had a very like insecurity regards to his pronunciation. And obviously his vocabulary is better than mine. He's an adult and I'm a, I'm a child. But you know, that was kind of like, you know, um, he did whatever he could to sort of, I guess, minimize my presence. And um, yeah, I was not asked to speak and it, stuff like that. So there's a lot of tension in that school, um, and I didn't feel comfortable or welcomed. Um, eventually, you know, we were talking, um, my family and I were talking about, okay, well, what are we going to do for high school? Uh, I was very not excited about the idea of continuing to stay in uh, schools in Tokushima and, you know, being sort of castigated as this cultural outsider um, it was fascinating how every little thing I did that was not fitting in was labeled as American or, um, I mean, there are obviously more pejorative terms that were being used, but basically, you know, an outsider. Um, so, um, if I did something that they thought was off, it was not because of me, but because of where I had been. And that, you know, comes back when I start working in Tokyo after college, but yeah, so for high school, um, my family made a decision to um, 
to transfer to a, a school in Kobe. And that was an international school. And, you know, that was a, it was a big change. And I mean, as probably many of you know, international schools are usually private. Um, my family was very privileged in that regard to be able to send me to an environment like that. And then, you know, and then after that, and that was kind of a big, really transformative experience because now I was the odd one out for a year, but now it's like, oh, everyone's like me, you know. Um, I didn't have to explain myself. Everyone had, you know, some sort of um, experience where they lived abroad and lived abroad or, you know, had, were multiracial, intercultural, and and that was that was totally normal or okay, um, and there was no stigma there. And so, yeah, for the first time in my life, I think I felt I felt like I could just be myself. Um, though, of course, international schools have their own issues um, because um, many many students there come from um, high income backgrounds. Not all, but many. And so, um, but yeah. So and that. After that, I went to um, a small liberal arts college in New York State, got a job working in Tokyo, and then um, quit my job after two years, entered a master's program at McGill University in music theory, and then here I am now. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I think it's not easy to reflect back on, especially what you had to go through in childhood, because you know, a sense of belonging is really important when you're developing as a person. And there are things I like about Japan, but being a Japanese, there's also something that I, that kind of parochial or casting someone as an outsider, if you're not, you know, fitting into local culture, like that's also a part where I really hope can change. So yeah, I'm so glad that, yeah, your family was able to send you to international sort of environment later. And then how you're shaping your environment as an adult now. Yeah, I guess I'm also curious, um, you know, do you think your background and your different cultural transitions, did it shape your career choices or how did it affect how you made decisions regarding your career? I think it definitely has. Um, so I remember towards my third and fourth year of undergrad, I was having to make, you know, decisions about what I wanted to do after graduating. Basically, a lot of um, Japanese students I knew who were studying in the U.S., most of them were returning to Japan and starting jobs there rather than staying in the U.S. I think one reason for that was that, I mean, this was true then and this is even true now, but getting a, a work visa in the U.S. is very, very difficult, and a lot of things are out of your control. And on the other hand, there's infrastructure to get a job in Japan while physically being present in the US. Uh, there's a big event, as, as Asuka knows, called Boston Career Forum. And it's, 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 you know, they like rent out the whole convention center, and it's like literally 10,000 Japanese college students all wearing suits. Like when I was there, a taxi driver, a local taxi driver would say, like, what on earth is going on? It looks like a scene from Matrix because everybody's in black. Because, <laughs> you know, again, the uniformity of how you should look and act during job hunting just permeates everything, right? So 
yeah <laughs> yeah that, no that's exactly it and and so uh, i went there a lot of my friends went there um and a lot of us end up finding jobs through there um and it's a and again as aska said it's a very surreal experience because everyone's there like really stressed out and everyone's really intense and everyone's there for the exact same reason um but it's a really intense weekend and you could you know land in boston on thursday and come out on sunday with a job it's like mm -hmm. it's very very quick um and so i think a lot of people are drawn to that as well and so when i was thinking about what i wanted to do i wasn't really sure what i wanted to do i was a music and economics double major in college you know i, I spent a lot of my time in college doing music related stuff but i didn't really I didn't really have the confidence to go right into a music career. I didn't even know what that meant. Um, I think I wanted something more stable. I really wanted to work not just in English or Japanese, but in two languages. That was something that was really important to me. That was really something important to my identity. And and again, that was you know I was thinking about that experience um, in middle school. You know, like being being the odd one out, and also my experience in Virginia, you know, um, being one of the few non-Americans in the class, for example. And so to me, what seemed, what I thought would be most comfortable was an environment where I could work in both languages when, and where a lot of um, my colleagues would be people who studied abroad or lived abroad and had that kind of, could understand what that experience was like. And that's how I ended up at Barclays. On that, um, what does intercultural competency mean to you and why do you think it matters? Yeah, that's a great question and I think an important one to ponder for a lot of us. I think the word intercultural and also the word global are often misused. That's the sense I get nowadays. Um, you know, you hear words, especially in like corporate or academic contexts that are like, oh, the borders have, you know, like borderless or you know, we are truly living in a global society or global programs, et cetera. But I don't necessarily agree with the way they use that term um, because I think it sort of flattens the often the power hierarchies that are in place um, when we use those words like global. So, I mean, I remember at Boston Career Forum, you know, so many companies that was like their, you know, that was their, their slogan, right? you know, come work with us with a global company. Um, we have a global outreach, we do global things. But you know, if you look closely at what these companies do, um, they often extract resources from low income countries, or um, they turn up, you know, they turn a blind eye to exploitation of labor. And oftentimes what when Japanese companies, especially say global, they mean North America, and Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And so if it's a global company, that means, well, you know, we have some Americans in the workforce. Um, of course, what they also mean is we have white Americans in the workforce. You know, it kind of completely ignores the fact that, you know, if, if there's a lot of employees from Asian countries, for some reason, Japan does not seem that as global. And I think that's very problematic. And so I think inter intercultural competence is sort of recognizing that, um, recognizing the ways in which 
when we romanticize, right, like the meeting of two cultures um, or, you know, experiencing multiple cultures, a lot of power hierarchies and a lot of um, historical dynamics like colonialism, for example, are completely ignored. And of course, that is the messy side that people often don't want to think about, but I think we need to face the truth. Um, and so I, th I think at the end of the day, intercultural competence is understanding your own positionality. So um, um, if you're Japanese, for example, and you, you know, move to the US, you quickly realize that you're racialized as an Asian person. And, you know, you experience your share of anti-Asian racism. But, you know, but as Japanese people, we also need to realize that a lot of people in the United States are also here because of Japanese colonialism during World War II. Um, and, you know, it, Japan's in a very odd position of being uh, non-Western, not white, um, but also it has its past of colonialism and the reason why it became a high income country after World War II in the first place was through um, US military intervention in Southeast Asia. And, you know, it's, it's the whole myth of like, oh, Jap Japan became wealthy because of hard work is a, is a huge cultural myth, right? And so it's kind of recognizing um, what privileges you have and what facts you might not, you might not be, you might be missing because of your positionality. And I think that's, um, that's, that competence is way more important than being multilingual or, you know, um, stuff like that. Yeah, so that must have been a quite a transition. Um, we heard that you did music in college, but then after a very corporate experience, yeah, like what motivated you to switch your gears back to music, and how did you go about that? So after after graduating, I moved back, entered Barclays, and um, it was right after it was the year of the triple disaster in. Northeast of Japan, Northeast Japan. So the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster of 2011. Um, and my family was on the opposite side of the country. But you know, it was it was kind of this moment where I thought, wow, like I I, I want to be home and closer to my family. And so I was really happy to be living in Tokyo. And it was the first time I lived in Japan by myself. And, you know, I was ready to learn. Um, there was some hesitation about, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly interested in finance in college. Um, you know, I wasn't familiar with a lot of the, a lot of the finance talk. Um, so I was a bit nervous, but I was also um, excited to sort of um, work for um, an environment in which a lot of employees had experience living abroad or, yeah, but then I opened the door um, and it was like a very, very, very domestic Japanese environment. Um, and I would soon find out that, yes, like if you look at the total statistics of a company, um, 
right? The demographics were diverse as far as Japanese companies go, but the dynamics really dependent on the, the, the teams that you were on, the departments. Um, so some teams were like, you know, um, there were more non-Japanese people than Japanese people, but others it was like entirely uh, Japanese and mostly men. And my department was mostly uh, Japanese people and like, uh, and their and their mentality was very traditional as well. A lot of the a lot of the my colleagues had grown up during the the bubble era of the eighties. So it was like you know, kind of like a go 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 like you know work hard when you're young, um, and very much valued like a hierarchy. Um, the senpai kohai hierarchy. Um, so yeah, that was that was a very eye opening because I thought I had signed up for something completely different. I totally hear um, you <laughs> being in the industry too. Um, of course, like it depends on which team you are, which, you know, part of the division. But yeah, it's kind of eye opening to see when they say they are quote unquote global companies. Um, it's good to good to know what it is like inside because um, some companies sort of Japanese. I'm not sure if that's the right term, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. At a, at a certain point, again, kind of like a, repeat of middle school there was a lot of clashing with my colleagues not necessarily because i wanted to um i don't i don't think i'm a confrontational person at all but the things i would do would sometimes really rub people the wrong way so for example in my first year i wanted to take a trip so i requested to take leave like a week-long leave and it was approved and you know it was fine but then soon after i returned from the trip i had heard secondhand that a lot of the more older employees in my department were kind of like aghast at the fact that a 22 year old uh, new new hire was like taking leave you know that that to them was like unimaginable for them it was like well if you're a new new hire work should be like your priority like you should stay late you should come early you shouldn't go home before your boss like you should always be like motivated to ask questions and like put in your you know hours and like you shouldn't want to take leave because you would just want to learn so much and work and that was kind of the mentality um but for me i was like oh well it says in my employee handbook that i can take leave you know x days a year so i did that so for me i was like oh i'm just following the rules or what you know these are my rights but um there are a lot of like unwritten rules and i'm yes. sure Aska can talk a lot about this too but that like you were expected to know. And mm -hmm. if you didn't, it was like, there were consequences, you know, people were, you know, people came and like, you know, told you off if you didn't follow these unwritten rules. I can't agree with you more. <laughs> I think it makes it complicated for people like us because we look Japanese and so we're expected to know these unwritten rules. And so I think that's what one of the reasons what causes you know, a clash, even we didn't mean to disrupt, you know, anything. Um, thinking back, I learned lots. But I wonder, like, if even for someone who grew up in Japan their whole lives, if it was their first job, would they know those little things as well? Or, you know, would they have to, you know, as well make mistakes, right? Because like, if it was their first job ever, like, would they know about that? Yeah, so that's too? the fascinating thing about um, Japanese corporate culture is that um, it's it's instilled in you 
unknowingly since you're middle or high school um, because if you join like a sports team in school for example the, again the seniority hierarchy is very important and so if you're a first year on the team like you need to do all these things for second and third years and if you're a third year on the team you expect first years to do all these things for you without even asking them so these are like things that are just in, and then that gets reinforced through in college and then so they're well prepared. A lot of students, especially those who play sports, are very well prepared by the time they enter the workforce because that's just something you do. Um, and you have that sort of embodied knowledge. Whereas if you don't grow up with that, you, you don't know at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Within that kind of environment, how did you drive yourself to work for your passion in music? Yeah, so when I entered, uh, when I started working, I knew that you know at some point I wanted to go back into music, but I just didn't know what or how. Um, and so, in I think in the first six months to a year, I quickly realized, okay, I'm, I I I don't think I'll be happy staying here for many many years. And so I started looking into graduate school and you know what I I started doing a lot of reflecting about what I liked about studying and doing music. And I, I talked with my um, mentors from undergrad, and eventually I reached the conclusion that I think I think I want to do I think I want to go into graduate school for music theory, and eventually get a PhD, and hopefully get a teaching job at a university or something. Um, that was sort of my thinking at the time, and yeah, um, that was like one year into the job. That's when I sort of started looking into schools and applying and doing the GREs and all that stuff. So for the final part of our conversation, so we'd like to ask your perspective as a former HR professional at a global firm. So our first question is, how does an HR person look at your resume? What are the kinds of things they look for when they're looking at your resume? Sure. Um, so before I answer that question, I'm just going to say a caveat, and it's that this is just my personal view on things. Um, I think everyone. Of course, we don't. We don't want to ask you to represent the whole <laughs> HR institution. Um, this, this is just um, also for listeners to please be mindful that this is not a straitjacket that we're trying to, you know, create. This is really a personal perspective of an HR person working at a Google firm in Tokyo and in that context. So, right. Yeah. So this is just my personal experience um, being in HR for two years there. But um, so I mainly looked at um, experienced hires. So I, I never um, I never was involved with hiring people out of college. That was a completely different team. But um, I was more involved in lateral hires. So people who are switching jobs. Um, mid-career and um the way the investment banking industry was doing things at the time at least was slightly different than what you could see in the us for example um a lot of it was run and coordinated by um, recruiters and headhunters so instead of people applying directly to the company for example you would get someone's cv through the recruiter so it was already kind of tailored and formatted in a way that was in a way to show 
companies what they might be looking for. So because the recruiter already is like the recruiter is basically the middle person between the company and the applicant. And so the recruiter knows a lot about what the position is. The recruiter also knows about the applicant and what they want. So the CVs, you know, the resume is sort of already tailored to what the company wanted. And so it's not it's not clear how much the applicant made the CV and how much the recruiter did. We only saw the finished product. But mostly um, it was, there was a lot of emphasis on how similar was their previous role to the role that's being sought out now. So even if they had a similar role, like what was the company beforehand? So Barclays is a British firm and its competitors were other American and European investment banks. So work experience in these similar environments was more highly valued than say someone transferring from a Japanese company or someone transferring from a different industry. Um, and another thing is sort of um, how easily you can make out someone's life, not life story, but career trajectory just by looking at the resume. Um, because uh, when we were doing that, doing searches, there was no cover letter. It was just the resume only and maybe a little bit of follow-up from the recruiter. But so you look at someone's resume um, and I remember my boss walking me through this. It was like, can you, you know, explain career changes just looking at their resume? Because um, most times it'll be very logical. Like they start out on one team, they gain responsibilities, transfer to a similar but new team, you know, learn more skills and then eventually get to where they are. So that was valued. And another thing that was really valued was um, how long they stayed in each company or each role. So um, job hoppers were very much, that was a big warning sign. If someone kept switching jobs or companies after a year, then that raises a big flag that, oh, maybe if they come to our company, they're also gonna jump ship after a year. And so that was, that was the big warning sign that we all had to look out for. Um, and then also like job gaps. Obviously they happen, but if there's multiple unexplained job gaps, then that was, uh, that was a big question mark. These tendencies for recruiters to focus on continuity and the logical sort of flow of your career trajectory, this is one of the reasons why we wanted to focus on the career for Globally Mobile Millennials in our podcast, because this is what we are basically facing. This is the culture or the system that tends to be before us. And so my question was, if you're coming from a nonlinear interdisciplinary career path like us, what are some of the insights to prepare you and to show and tell your story in a way that can kind of engage a recruiter or help them kind of make sense of life events or, you know, things that went through in your career? I think that's a really difficult an important question. Um, and I think that's also something that I'm still figuring out myself. But the sense I got, or the sense I'm getting, is that ultimately the, the resume and or cover letter you submit is to get your foot in the door. And once you have the interview, you have a lot of control over how to explain your story, how to craft your narrative. Um, but in order to do that, you first have to get your foot in the door. And that's I mean, that's really where the resume comes in. Um, and I think if you're trying to really make a huge career change or an industry change, that can be that can be difficult to do and get noticed. But I think, and this is like 
commonly given advice, but it's it's I think it's really important to highlight the really related experience you might have. Mm-hmm. So um, just because you you don't have experience in one industry doesn't necessarily mean you're never gonna get the opportunity to work in it, but uh, there needs to be some connection, and that connection needs to be highlighted as like closely related experience. What's often underemphasized is how closely and critically you read that job posting. Um, there's the stuff they say, there's like, oh, this is the job role, this is the expectations, these are the qualifications, these are the preferred qualifications. But then there's, if you read closely, there's all these, these things that they don't say, but, they're, but it's clear that they want. And so I think that's like, that's like a really important uh, thing to do is just to like sit down and really just like, really like go through that job posting and pick up on what they're actually looking for. Definitely making the connections more visible and also perhaps um, doing some informational interviews. As you mentioned, there can be things that we cannot see from the outside of the company or institution. So connecting with someone who's already in the role or something can maybe also help you read in between the lines of the position and things. Did you ever, like in your experience in HR, did you ever come across a resume that was, you know, non-linear, non-traditional? So someone who didn't come from, you know, a US or European bank, but then who wanted to work at Barclays? And like, did you ever come across any individual who had that background and then who was successful in getting hired? So there were a few of them. This is obviously depending on the position, but some positions like really required um, a deep knowledge of, you know, Japanese domestic markets and practices. So in that case, it totally made sense to take someone from a Japanese auditing firm. And in that case, since that candidate spoke uh, fluent English, it made sense. In my experience, that was unfortunately um, the aspect that made it difficult to to hire qualified people is that it was like the the linguistic aspect because their day-to-day job might primarily be Japanese, but um, if you don't speak English, it's really difficult to communicate with other employees in the company. And so it was less like, oh, we only take people from non-Japanese banks, but it was more that the people working for non-Japanese banks also tend to speak English. Um, it was more of that, definitely. Um, for like idiosyncratic backgrounds, there are definitely people who were involved in different industries like early on in their career, but eventually they like landed in finance or like a related job kind of stayed there for a bit. And so I don't think I've ever seen a case where someone had like a really eccentric, non-traditional background and was hired into the position. I mean, I can't say if that's true outside of finance, but in investment banking, that was it was definitely the case that um, people already had very closely religious experience. And this is where it really sort of differs for mid-career recruits. Uh, versus the new hires. And I think Japan is very unique in that compared to North American context, that tends to sort of put more emphasis into more experience. Um, the new hire recruiting in Japan's very 
different because you can be major measuring in totally different field, but you could still get hired because for those populations, um, the recruiters looking for your aptitude and your positive energy. And if you're interested in that field and if you can learn to become good at it, you know, those kind of things are what they usually look for. So I think, yeah, it's also important to know where in the stage are you in terms of marketability of you of who you are. So yeah, but for mid careers, yeah, that's the thing we have to navigate. Yeah, and I think one important thing to keep in mind is that whatever level you're in, whether you're a college student trying to break into the industry or a mid-career person looking for a move, there's like a very serious pipeline problem. So in Japan, for example, a lot of the banks are only interested in hiring from very small select handful of schools. And same in the US, mm -hmm. right? These banks only hire from a very select few of schools in Canada too. And same with lateral hires, you know, like I said, they were looking to hire from basically similar environments and companies. And so the hurdle for breaking in becomes significantly higher if you don't meet that profile. And that's not necessarily the applicant's fault. That's more like a larger systemic issue that companies are just setting up for themselves. So I think um, applicants can do a lot to help themselves, but it's also important to know that it's also, it's, it's the companies who are, they, they already prefer certain backgrounds, unfortunately. So in what ways, like, you know, to make yourself stand out to these companies, like when you're looking for a job, in what ways can you make yourself stand out? And in what ways can you highlight your global competition? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's important to, if you're multilingual, highlight that and you know if you have experience working with organizations or companies that worked transnationally or interculturally highlighting that because i think you know just because you work for say a japanese company does not necessarily mean that you don't have transnational or intercultural experience i think not just where you work but what you're actually doing and really highlighting that part is really important you know, obviously, like everybody, you have to be prepared going to interviews, you know, but then if everyone is prepared and everyone is qualified, like what would kind of make you hire this person over this person? And does that come up in the interviews? Because I imagine like you would kind of right. feel the vibe of the person, right? Like to see if maybe they would fit in this culture or not. So were there any, you know, specific yeah, so things that you were The only interviews for? I was involved in were um, mid-career hires. And I got the impression that what they're looking for for mid-career is completely different from what they look for in, like, hiring someone straight out of undergrad. Um, for mid-career, it's like there's a lot, of, a lot more emphasis on, like, how much do they know for that job? You know, it's like what, like, the, the hard skills, the technical skills do they have? And that's like, seems to be the most important part of it. And then, you know, like, can we imagine working with this person? Ultimately, it was like, how well did they know what they're doing? And if you did, then that's, that got you pretty, pretty close. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, that is the difference between mid-career and like, when you're just starting out. I know we talked a lot yeah. about um, the insides and the ickiness of things, but uh, are there things that the experiences that you had in the corporate field transferred or maybe helped you even 
on what you're doing now Definitely. or yeah so i think you know like academia gets a lot of criticism for like acting like a corporation nowadays but i do think there are certain things that academia can learn from corporations and one of them is um accountability and the other is communication and what i mean with accountability is for example in academia right if i email like someone in the department like a faculty member and they don't write respond to my email in like a month like there's nothing i can do about it <laughs> there's nothing i can do about it and that's like you just kind of have to wait you can follow up but like there's no consequences um whereas in the business world especially in banking like if you if you don't respond to that email in a few hours you know it's like people are going to be very unhappy with you like things aren't going to move forward yeah so i don't know just like like there's a sense of accountability more so than in academia um and same with like communication it's like like emails move very quickly and emails are to the point in place in business and then um i think when i went to graduate school i tried to preserve that habit as much as i could like you know try not to leave people hanging for weeks and months <laughs> thank you so much for going all these questions and uh yeah thank you so much <laughs> for you know taking so the time today <laughs> That was Toru Momi, a PhD candidate in music theory at Columbia University in New York. We hope that this was an inspiring conversation for anyone thinking about global career transitions. Thank you so much for tuning into Culture Crossings. This was Asuka and Bibi. To connect with us, visit our website at www.2020culturecrossings.wordpress.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time. Bye. Bye.